0: Good morning, church family. It's great to be with you this morning. We're continuing our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Teach us to pray. Now, this is the truth that we've come around all of these weeks, that prayer is not about requests, but about a relationship. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, start with this, Our Father, our Father. And in those two words, Jesus unlocked for us the true meaning of prayer. More than petitions and requests, Jesus says he longs for a relationship with you. And prayer becomes a means of pursuing a relationship with our Heavenly Father, where we get to, not have to, we get to spend time with the God of the universe and catch a glimpse of his heartbeat, his kingdom purposes for the world and when this paradigm shift occurs church we realize that prayer itself is its own reward That communing with god itself becomes the prize that the reward for prayer becomes the joy of being with him the blessing of being able to call him what abba father abba father now Here is where we're going today, okay? We're on the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And Jesus reminds us of a powerful, sobering truth in this petition, and that is this. Nothing hinders that deep communion with God more than ongoing unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Let me say that one more time. Nothing hinders that deep communion with God that our Heavenly Father longs for us than ongoing, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Listen to the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have built barriers between you and and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah literally says that God will not hear our prayers if there are unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives. I just, I just want, I just want that, that to sink in for us this morning, church. That your Heavenly Father who loves you, your Heavenly Father who promises to never leave you or forsake you, says that unconfessed, unrepentant sin causes him to hide his face from you. Sin cuts us off our communion with God. And this is serious. Now, let me be absolutely clear with us this morning, okay? There is nothing that you can do or don't do to change your status of being a child of your father. He is your heavenly father by the virtue of your faith and trust in the work of Christ. But there are things that you can do or don't do that can affect the enjoyment of that relationship with him. You see, our capacity to enjoy our relationship with our Heavenly Father, our ability to feel and to sense and to rest satisfied in all that is entailed in that relationship is greatly affected by unconfessed, unrepentant sin. If you and I tolerate ongoing patterns of sin in our lives, rationalizing them away and refusing to repent, your relationship with your Father is deeply impacted. And you know what else? For 30 years in ministry, I've seen this, in my life and in others. When we remain in our sin. When we don't confess it, when we justify it or ignore it, sin eats away at us. Sin eats away at us. David says in Psalm 32, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned All day long. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. This is King David. His story reminds us that no amount of money or sex or power or success or vacation will assuage a guilty conscience. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? But the opposite is also true. See, in that very psalm, David says this, Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. Now, that word blessed, every time we come to this, I have to take a moment to explain it, right? Blessed in English just means inspired or lifted up. But biblically, in Hebrew and in Greek, to be blessed means complete wellness of being and profound fulfillment. But do you notice who it comes to? Who is it for? David says it's for the forgiven. David is saying that the most fulfilled life belongs to people who know that they have been deeply forgiven. And Jesus talks about this. Jesus says one of the most remarkable things in all the scriptures. In Luke chapter seven, Jesus says, the one who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus says the most loving people The most compassionate people, the people whose life, who lived life to the fullest are those who have been the most forgiven. I've come that you might have life, he said, and have it to the full. And that full life, Jesus says, comes to those who know what it is to be deeply forgiven. So, as we go through the Lord's Prayer, as we've been doing, today we come to the fifth petition forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. And it is no accident, church, that this petition comes right after what? The petition for daily bread. Why? Jesus is saying, just as daily bread is critical for physical sustenance, daily confession and repentance that leads to forgiveness, both with God and with others, is critical for spiritual sustenance. We need to pay attention to that word daily, okay? Keep short accounts with God. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, don't ignore it. Or as Paul says, don't quench the spirit, confess it, repent from it. Daily confession and daily repentance is just as critical for our spiritual life as it is for our, as daily bread is for our what? Physical life. Which begs this question. Does your prayer life reflect that? Come on, guys. Let's Let's just be honest here, okay? When's the last time that daily confession and repentance for your sins was a regular part of your prayer life? Now, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but, but new community in many ways is not different from most churches in America in regards to this. That is to say that time for not just individual, but corporate confession and repentance for our sins is not a regular part of our corporate worship. But how do we square that with the Lord's prayer? How how do we square this with abundant material in all the scriptures that talks about how critical daily confession and daily repentance is in the life of a Christian? So this outline of this petition is pretty straightforward the first half of this petition deals with the vertical relationship that is receiving forgiveness from God and the second half of this petition deals with the horizontal relationship and that is what giving forgiveness to others and as we're going to see next week church there is a correlation between the two what do I mean If you have a problem giving forgiveness to others, it is because you have a problem receiving forgiveness from God. I was in a counseling session with a guy, and after about an hour or so, I realized that behind the bitterness and the anger and resentment was his unwillingness to forgive somebody. So I asked him, I said, let me ask you a question. Why, why haven't you forgiven this person? And I'll never forget. He was visibly shaking and he said this. Because he hasn't earned it. He hasn't earned my forgiveness. Do you know why you and I feel like we have to make other people earn our forgiveness? It's because we feel like we have to earn god's forgiveness matthew 10 8 freely you have received freely give the pe- the reason people can't freely give is because they haven't received freely If you're here this morning and if you think in any way, shape, or form that you're earning God's forgiveness by good behavior, going to church, staying away from certain things, you will make others earn your forgiveness, child of God. As we did with the fourth petition, we're going to spend the next two weeks on the fifth petition, okay? And we're going to ask three questions. Questions one, why do we need forgiveness? And two, how do we receive forgiveness? And three, how do we give forgiveness? Pretty straightforward, right? And next week, we're going to spend all of the next week on the third question. How do we give forgiveness? Because I imagine it's something that all of us struggle with. So today, we're going to tackle first, why do we need forgiveness? Well, Jesus tells us why when he uses the word debts to talk about our sins. Forgive us our debts, Jesus teaches us to pray. Now, the particular word used here for debt is only used twice in the entire New Testament. Did you know that? The other time it's used is in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus teaches on forgiving others. Now, the word debt here is not a religious word. It's actually a word that was used in commerce. And it was a word used to describe a loan that is justly due, but you can never repay it. It's a loan that's justly and legally due, but you can't repay it. It's what we would call today bankruptcy debt. It's so big and so high that your income would never be able to repay the debt. It's something that you have to be forgiven of. Your only hope is the intervention of a creditor. You know, all of these years of being a pastor, one of the questions I get asked the most, especially from non-Christians, is this. Why did Jesus have to die? Why why did he have to die? I mean, this is the part of Christianity I just don't understand. Why couldn't God just forgive us? Isn't he a, a loving God? Why doesn't he just say, I forgive you? If God really wants to forgive us, he could have just said it. Here's why. When you and I are hurt or injured, when somebody really wrongs you, there's always a sense of loss. Loss of face, Loss of reputation. Loss of some opportunity that you might never get again. And so there's a sense in which you feel robbed, right? So you feel robbed of the childhood you never had. Robbed of the marriage some of you dreamed of. Robbed of the opportunity of a lifetime. And what happens over time is that there then develops this sense that the person who hurts you is a debtor to you. Whenever you're hurt, insulted, injured, or someone robs you of an idea, there's always a sense in which something was taken from you, and it creates a debt in your relationship. That's why we say things like what? You owe me an apology. You owe me an apology. There's this real debt, and you feel it. You feel that that person owes you and is liable to you. And there are only two basic ways for this debt to be paid down, if you will, and removed so that that relationship can continue. One is you make them pay. How do you do that? You hurt them. You take vengeance on them. You think bad thoughts about them. You wish ill will towards them in your heart. You gossip about them. You slander them. And you carve up their reputation with others. You make them pay. But do you know what happens when you do that? The evil that was done to you passes into you. And you become hard and angry and resentful And bitter. Child of God, you need to know that our souls were not created to contain toxic emotions like hate and anger and resentment and bitterness. And ultimately, evil wins in the end. The other possible way to deal with the debt. It's for you to pay, right? And this is what forgiveness is. It's the very costly willingness to absorb the debt yourself. Now, I've heard people say to me, you know, somebody really wronged me, but I forgave them. It was, it was no big deal. Whenever someone says that, here's what I think. I think either they're in denial or they weren't really wrong. And that's because if someone has really hurt you, really wronged you, you realize that words are not the currency of true forgiveness. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is absorbing the debt yourself. How do you do that? Even though you want to make them pay, you absorb the debt. You pay the debt. How do you do that? You refrain from hurting them. You refrain from harming them, taking vengeance on them, thinking bad thoughts about them, wishing ill will towards them. You refrain from gossiping about them, slandering them, carving up their reputation with others. Forgiveness. Is refraining from making the other person pay down the debt and absorbing the cost yourself. And that hurts. That's agony. Some people would say that it feels like a kind of death, and it is. It is an emotional fact of life that you cannot forgive without suffering yourself. So here's where we stand. If somebody wrongs you and you make them pay, in the process, the evil that was done to you passes into you and evil wins. But if you forgive them, it hurts like crazy. And it's agony. Why? Because the currency of forgiveness is not words. It's nails. It's thorns. It's blood. It's tears. And it's sweat. But eventually, you triumph over evil. What happened on the cross? Think of all the sins that we've committed against each other and against God. We owe God a debt that we can't ever pay. And there are only two things that God can do. He can make us pay or he can pay. Why did Jesus have to die? On the cross, the perfect, sinless son of God absorbed your debt, not with words, but with nails and thorns and blood and tears. If we are made paid to debt of our sins against God, you and I would be lost forever. So here's what Jesus did, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Is that good news? The insurmountable debt that was owed to God, Jesus paid it, all of it. Our debts that we could never pay, canceled, nailed to the cross. In Christ Jesus, all of our sins, past, present, future, were forgiven once for all. Hebrews 9, 26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all, finished, finished, Paid in full, can't be added to, can't be improved upon. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Why do we need to be forgiven? We're debtors in need of intervention from a creditor. And his name is Jesus. Now, if you're still with me this morning, you're thinking, well, what? why do we then need to continue to seek forgiveness if all of our sins have been canceled in Christ? And I actually get asked that question quite a bit. And I don't have time to delve into deep the theological sort of rationale, but the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus in John 13 actually gives us a clue. In John 13, 6, Here's what it says. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus replied, Peter, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And Simon Peter then exclaimed, then then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. verse 10, Jesus replied, here it is, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. See, dirt on the feet symbolizes the daily surface contamination, if you will, from sin that we experience as we walk through life. But it does not and cannot make us entirely dirty because we have been permanently cleansed from that. So when sin happens in the life of those who've trusted in Christ Jesus, our relationship with God remains intact. But what is affected is the enjoyment of our relationship with God as our father. Dads, when one of your kids does something wrong, they don't stop being your son or your daughter. The relationship is intact. But there's a cloud hanging over the dinner table, is there not? The child has not sinned himself or herself out of a relationship with you as the father. But they've sinned themselves into a situation where all of the blessings and all of the enjoyment and all of the sweetness of that relationship has been marred. So what needs to happen? There needs to be I'm sorry. There needs to be confession. There needs to be forgiveness. Now, how then do we receive forgiveness? When you know you've screwed up and you've failed, and when you know it's your fault, how do you get up again after you've fallen in such a way that you have more joy, more power than before? How how do you get up not broken and crippled and in worse shape than before, but actually better? One word, and that word is repentance. Repentance. Uh, Psalm 51 that was read earlier is perhaps the greatest passage in all of the scriptures on this wonderful theme of repentance. This is a psalm of David, and there's a caption to this psalm, and it tells you the circumstances under which it was written. The caption says what? A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. The story of David and Bathsheba is one of the most well-known stories in all of human history. So here's a a one-minute summary for those of you that don't know. David blew up his life as much as anybody ever has. He fell in love with Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife. He then conspired to have her husband, Uriah, who, by the way, was one of his most loyal, trusted friend, murdered in order to have her. And then he covered it up. One day into his court comes a man named Nathan, the prophet. And Nathan says to the king, O king, I have a sad incident to relate to you, and and I'd actually like your judgment on it. Well, what is it, says David. Nathan says, well, there are two men in your kingdom, and, and one is very rich man. He has so many cattle and flocks that you can't even number them. And the other hand... There's a very poor man who only has one animal, a little lamb. This little lamb is like the man's daughter. She eats from his plate and she sleeps in his arms. Well, recently, the rich man was entertaining a traveler and decided he had to entertain this man with the great feast. But instead of going to his own flock to get something for the man to eat, he stole the one little lamb of this poor man and killed it and fed it to his guest. Now, what do you think of that, King David? And the Bible says that David arose in wrath and said, the man who has done that deserves to die. And Nathan stopped him with just a wave of his hand, and Nathan said, you... You are that man. Just a sidebar here, okay? Thank God for the Nathans in our lives. Anybody? Anybody? You and I would be dead without Nathans, without people who come along and bring truth and love, the truth of God's word, and lay it on our hearts because we wouldn't see it otherwise. I've been fortunate enough to marry one of my Nathans, if you will. Can I ask you a question? Do you have Nathans in your life? Do you let them operate? Are you a Nathan to anybody else? We would be lost without them. Take a moment to be thankful Grateful for the Nathans in your life. We have Psalm fifty-one because David reflected on this event in his life, and he actually wrote a song about it, right? And in this psalm, David outlines what genuine repentance entails. Okay, and if you're someone who finds that repentance has not brought you joy in the past, or it hasn't actually changed you, and you find yourself falling back into the same old pattern over and over again, it could be that you just haven't repented yet, or you haven't repented properly. See, I've noticed that many of us think we know what repentance is, but we really don't. Now, I wish I had time to go deep into each and every one of these verses in Psalm 51. I can't this morning. So, I want you to make sure that you do that in community, okay? After this sermon, study it together. Go deeper in it together and figure out together how to apply these principles that I'm going to quickly outline for us this morning. All right, so here we go. What is genuine repentance? How do we do it? First, see your sins as God sees it. See your sins as God sees it. Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, church, check this out. What is David doing? David is insisting on seeing his sin the way God sees it. Not as our culture sees it. Not as our parents see it. Not as our peers see it, and not as our feelings see it. To David, the only eyes that matter are the eyes of what? God. Quick example. In your parents' eyes, you feel ashamed. Why? Because they wanted you to make a lot of money, and you never had that kind of a career. So let's test this. Is that a sin? what do god's eyes think of that if in god's eyes it's a sin then confess it repent from it but if in god's eyes it's not a sin then you resist it it's when you and i see our sins the way god sees it that we can rightly confess what i did was wrong well well who says god says In your sight, I have sinned. Do you know that the word confession, homologeo in Greek, literally means to agree with, to assent. Repentance begins with agreeing with God that what you did was wrong, which then begs this incredibly important question. Is the Bible the ultimate truth and authority in your life? Come on, church. Is the word of God the ultimate truth, authority in your life? The psalmist declares, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Who tells you what's right and what's wrong? Do you believe in moral absolutes? Is the Bible the guiding North Star, the compass for your life? from which you make decisions and live your life. I have seen the gradual erosion of God's word as authority, not for non-Christians, but for Christians. What is evil in God's sight? We now say, well, that's not what he really meant. Listen, my opinions and what I think doesn't matter. My job is to point all of us to the truth of God's word, and regardless of what the issue is, we humbly go back to his word, and we ask, what does God have to say about that? Now, what our culture says, now what our peers, now what our parents, or my feelings say, repentance begins when we see our sins as God sees it. Secondly, acknowledge your sins without excuses. Acknowledge your sins without excuses. Psalm 51, 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Those three words, iniquity, transgression, and sin are all words that mean deliberate rebellion. So David is saying, I take full responsibility for my actions. No excuses. There there is no, well, if you knew what I've been through and how badly people have treated me, you'd grant me a little slack. That's not repentance. Repentance. David is saying, I sinned because I wanted to. I take full responsibility. I make no excuses. I cannot blame the pressures of being a king. I cannot blame Bathsheba's wily temptations. I cannot blame anybody. I cannot blame anything. I make no excuses. I did it because I wanted to do it. No one Made me do it. Listen, church. Blame shifting goes way back to the very beginning of time, doesn't it? Eve made me do it. Well, the serpent made me do it. Listen to me. Circumstances might shape your sin, but they never cause your sin. You and I do it because we want to. Come on. The circumstances, the temptations, the mistreatments, what people do to you may shape your sin, shape the kind of sin maybe, but they never cause the sin. A lot of people say, well, I'm repenting, but I feel feel bad afterwards. That's because if you listen to yourself, you realize that all you're doing is complaining. My parents did this. My stress level did this. My boss did this. My wife did this. I was so tired. Psalm 51, there is not a shred of excuse making. There is no blame shifting anywhere here. Genuine repentance acknowledges your sins without any excuses. And third... Genuine repentance, daily admit your sins and be specific. For there to be genuine repentance, daily admit your sin and be, and I was gonna add, painfully specific. Psalm 51, it's clear, David comes totally clean. Forgiveness towards others is unnervingly specific. The corollary is that seeking forgiveness from God is also specific. God, forgive me for looking long and hard at the woman in the store today and giving into my lustful sexual thoughts. God, forgive me for lying to my coworkers about that project deadline because I want it to save face. God, Forgive me for tearing down that person's reputation because I wanted to get even. God, forgive me for saying yes to her and then resenting her afterwards because really I crave her approval. We don't commit our sins in some bland, generic matter and we shouldn't confess our sins in some bland, generic manner. It is so critical. It is so critical, church, that there be a time of quiet introspection at some point in the day. Do you know that? A time where you and I scroll through the day or the hours that preceded our time of prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to prompt our confession. Psalm 139, verse 23, search me. O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You see, when you and I are quiet before God, things often come blazing into our minds that need owning up. Things that you and I need to own up to before God. Let me tell you something. God doesn't speak in generalities. Do you know that? It's often very specific. So when God does, admit your sins and be specific. Church, develop the spiritual discipline of doing this daily. Daily. Keep short account. With God. Next, mourn your sins and not the consequences of your sins. For to be genuine repentance, mourn your sins and not the consequences of your sins. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about godly sorrow over sin that leads to deliverance and no regret. And worldly sorrow over sin that leads only to death and bondage. Paul says that there are two kinds of sorrow for sin. Godly sorrow over sin, he says, leads to freedom and deliverance. And worldly sorrow leads to death and to bondage. Now, what's the difference, you say? Worldly sorrow is essentially self-pity for having been exposed for having been caught and having lost stature or favor or respect in the eyes of people. In other words, your sorrow is all about you. It's about self-pity. It's about self-centeredness. It's about self-absorption. But godly sorrow, biblical mourning occurs when you realize that ultimately the sin in question has dishonored God. That's why in Psalm 51.4, we saw it earlier, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. See, people read that and they go, well, 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 what about Uriah dead on the battlefield? Because of you, David. Well, what about Bathsheba without her husband? Because of you, David. How can you say that against you and you only? Here's how. Please don't miss this. David is saying, what makes this wrong is not just that I broke a rule, but it's that I broke God's heart. What makes this wrong is not just that I trampled on God's law, but that I trampled on him. I've trampled on my Redeemer, someone whose love is unfailing, someone whose compassion is infinite. Listen to me, your life could depend on this. If you and I only repent because of fear of punishment or fear of consequences, it restrains that sin for a season, but it doesn't transform your heart It doesn't lead to freedom to simply go and say, Lord, Lord, I was bad because I committed adultery. I I broke the seventh commandment, and now you're going to punish me and get me. So, Lord, please have mercy on me. It's not what David does. David says, I see that I've trampled on you. And I don't care what the consequences are. I'm not focused on the consequences, God. The focus is I want to love you. I want to honor you. And I want to be right with you again. There's a kind of repentance that focuses primarily on the consequences and uses God as a means in which case you end up hating yourself, but not your sin. And there's a kind of repentance that focuses on God, makes God the end, and the result is you will hate the sin, but not yourself. Godly sorrow is, how could I treat someone like this, who loves me like this? How how could I do this to someone who has promised that no matter what I do, he will never leave me or forsake me? The very same thing that assures you that you mean the world to him and that he is committed to you no matter what is the very thing that convicts you of your sin, which means that you come to hate the sin, the thing that has trampled on his loveliness, but not yourself. Christian, mourn your sins and not the consequences of Your sins. A couple more and we're done. Next, and these are the most difficult. Resolve to turn away from sin. Resolve to turn away from sin. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not just change of heart. True repentance is change of life. In true repentance, there is a resolve to turn away, walk away from a life of sin. This is incredibly sobering. Uh, In the book of Acts, there's a revival of sorts that breaks out in Ephesus in response to the preaching of the gospel. And check out what happens. Acts 19 verse 18. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices doesn't stop there. Verse 19, a number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. If it is to be genuine repentance, there must be a deliberate resolve to turn around and walk away from sin. What do you need to walk away from, Christian? Who do you need to walk away from, Christian? Let me say that again. What do you need to walk away from? And who do you need to walk away from? Now this doesn't mean that we'll be perfect and won't ever sin again. But it does mean if there is no change in our lives, you and I have to seriously ask, have I truly repented? Have I truly repented? And here's the last and most important. And that is resolve to turn towards Jesus. It's not enough to resolve to turn away from sin. You need to resolve to turn towards Jesus. This is good news. Psalm 51, 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit, within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And then verse 12, one of my favorite verses in all the scripture, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Now, when David says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, most of us think this. Oh, he lost the joy of his salvation because he sinned. And yes, we've said that sin will break our fellowship with God and the enjoyment of our heavenly father. But I noticed this literally for the first time this week as I was preparing this. David not only lost the joy of salvation because he sinned. Listen, listen. He sinned because he lost the joy of his salvation. David sinned because he lost the joy of his salvation. We only ever sin because we've lost the joy of our salvation. David is saying, before I committed physical adultery, I had already committed spiritual adultery. Why did I want Bathsheba? Why was I willing to murder for her? What was wrong with my heart? And he's saying, Father, I forgot your unfailing love. I wasn't ravished with it, it wasn't the joy of my heart. It wasn't the thing that ravished me, that satisfied me. What beauty is like your beauty? That's why I needed her beauty. What arms are like your arms? That's why I needed her arms. What love is like your love, God? That's the reason why I sinned. Before I ever sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, It was you. I forgot you. I stopped being excited by you. I stopped enjoying you. I sinned because I lost the joy of your salvation. So Father, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Turn towards Jesus, Christian. Turn towards Jesus, Christian. And turning towards Jesus is what will enable you and I to do the second part of this petition. What will enable us to forgive others? Come on. Jesus Christ came to earth, died on the cross, and the last thing he said before he died was what? Tetelestai in Greek, which is always translated in English Bibles. It is finished. But do you know that it is translated literally in Greek? It is paid. It's paid. What is the essence of the gospel? He didn't make you pay the debt. He paid the debt. Turn towards Jesus and look at what Jesus did for you. A savior who doesn't take a penny from us. He paid it all of it. And if you look at what he has done for you, that will change you. Until you see him paying down the infinite unpayable debt, you will never, you will never, you and I will never be able to pay down the little debt that others owe us. Turn towards Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. First John 1.8 says if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins He is so faithful and so just that He'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Church family. Forgiveness comes to those willing to see sin as God sees sin. Acknowledge it without making excuses and admit it. And here's the thing you need to know. God doesn't ever make us confess. You know what he does? He invites us to. He invites us you and me to confess and to repent how will we respond and this morning in this time of prayer there's a series of questions that you'll see on your screen to sort of guide you as we prayerfully say search me O." Search me, O God. Let these questions guide you as you listen. Have I become so numb to sin that I don't even recognize it or its consequences anymore? Do I regularly confess my sins to God? If not, why not? What situation, relationship, thought, or action is God convicting me of right now? Right now. And lastly, am I willing to expose all that is in my heart to the Lord, compare it to the truth of His Word, and allow my heart to be searched by His Spirit? Church, take a moment to genuinely ask those questions and listen to what the Spirit has to say. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus. It is finished indeed, fully paid for, past, present, and future. In the knowledge of that assurance, help us to keep short accounts with you, Father. Help us to daily search our hearts. And if there is any, if there's any offensive way in us, convict our hearts that we may turn from our sin and turn towards you. We say with David, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation. What beauty is like your beauty? What arms are like your arms? What love is like your love? Father, nothing and no one compares to you. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Jesus, if we have you, we have enough. If I have you, I have enough. In your precious name, we pray. Amen. church will pick up the second part of this petition next Sunday. Please join me as I say this corporate benediction that anchors us in who we are. We believe that we have been created to live deeply with one another. To carry each other's burdens, to share our possessions, to share our bread, and to pray for and confess our sins to each other, to suffer and to celebrate together. It's in these sacred relationships and honest, loving communities that God transforms us. The way of Jesus cannot be lived alone. The way of Jesus cannot be lived alone church lord willing we'll see you again next week take good care